Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, legal historian Cynthia Nicoletti on treason, secession, and accountability. If pressed, if I had to give one reason that Jefferson Davis is not put on trial for treason, I would say it's because he had a good lawyer. If somebody calls me up and says, give me one sentence on whether secession is legal, I say, it's not. See Texas versus white. I've been thinking about like what went on in Davis's trial and then what happened with January 6th. And I do think that the passage of time is sort of a big problem. And by that, I mean, if you think you're not going to strike while the moment is hot, because that moment is going to linger, right? And you might have a chance to do something down the line. I don't think that's so true. Cynthia, thank you for joining me on Chatter. Thanks for having me. These are interesting times we're living in. We've had in in recent years, lawmakers in places like Maryland and Virginia talking about whether some counties can peel off and secede. You've had Texas just earlier this month, a lawmaker there proposed a referendum for Texas voters to vote on seceding from the union. And there's a bunch of talk going on about insurrection and prosecutions for taking part in an insurrection. And I thought, well, there's one person who has some really interesting insights on this based on something that happened back in the 1860s, and that's the treason prosecution, such that it was of Jefferson Davis. So uh, thank you for joining me, because this this is going to give us some really useful context and some insights for people about what has gone before that could relate to some of those issues as they develop. Great. Yeah, I'm excited to dive in. You've got a very different background than than a lot of people that we've had the opportunity to speak with because you didn't just get a law degree, you got a PhD in history that really crosses over that legal historical boundary. Where did that interest come from in digging deep into both the the legal history and the no kidding history history outside of pure constitutional interpretation itself, but into no kidding, archives and records. I went to law school first. I mean, when, as an undergraduate, I studied history and I really loved it. And then um, what would I say? I had some parental pressure in terms of um, choosing between um, history graduate school and law school. Uh-huh. Hard to imagine. Um, <laughs> so I was always interested in both, but law school seemed like the better degree to pursue first. Okay. And uh, I really didn't think about um, going to, I didn't think I was going to do both. But when in law school, I was really interested in questions like, how does law structure our society? How do we Mm -hmm. think about law? And those were less prominent um, in terms of the things that we were actually talking about in law school. And so uh, I thought, um, I'm going to do something I really love um, for a year. And I thought I would just get a master's degree in history. But it turns out that um, when I went to graduate school in history, which I did after law school, um, I really loved history. And strangely enough, um, studying history seriously in a serious way that a historian does um, made me actually really love law like in a roundabout way, um, because I really did get to think about the questions I was initially interested in, which is how do Americans think of themselves as law abiding and how does law 
even structure our conception of ourselves as Americans. Um, on a daily basis, I get to think about those questions. Most law school graduates don't get to dive that deeply into history. Yes, you you dive through, you know through con law or something. You dive into slices of particular history, but it's 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 not a history PhD. Do you do you think that the law school experience for everyone would be enriched with just a little bit more of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I certainly benefit from the fact that lawyers do think of this as a historically inflected discipline. Um, I do think that um, lawyers and historians think about history quite differently. I don't know if you want to explore that topic. I, w- I would love to, because I'm really fascinated by, I mean, in my own experience doing a political science PhD, I found some of the richest things in in the time I was studying it were not the the hardcore central political science issues that were being beaten to death. It was the insights coming from other disciplines, like how how politics intersected with political psychology or how it intersected with sociology. Um, and some of that, I, I think, is where some of the most fruitful questions are because they're they're not squarely within one domain. But it's frankly more interesting to explore when you realize I'm I'm not just answering a question in my area of specialty, but I'm learning about another area while doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes sense. I will say also being a law professor these days, um, it's a very interdisciplinary field, right? So I have lots of colleagues who are um, interested in, you know, who have PhDs in political science or in economics or psychology, right? So um, there are lots of I get exposed to a lot of other different approaches, um, which I think is a good thing. But in terms of the question of how history and law intersect, right? So I do think that lawyers think, oh, the history of um, how, you know, a certain doctrine has been interpreted over time really matters. Um, and particularly in the modern era where there's, uh, you know, where there's so much emphasis on originalism, I do think that there's interest in history. But I tend to think that lawyers think that these historical questions have a definite answer, right? Like how was this issue thought of at a particular time? And then they think, um, oh, there's a clear answer. Um, And as a historian, I tend to think about, well, what was the messiness of this? How was this actually, um, I'm I'm less interested in what's the payoff for today and more interested in, um, oh, there were actual people thrashing this out at a particular um, time, right? And uh, how do they actually get to the outcome that we think of as, oh, maybe here's our bullet point of, you know, what actually, you know, here's the takeaway. Right. I'm interested in the messiness before they know that there's going to be a takeaway. And, and some of that messiness is, of course, lost to the mist of history because what once you decide, once you negotiate whatever it is, uh, often that's what gets written down the most, and that's the memories gel around that later. And some of that messy process, unless you have people writing really good diaries or they've kept really good letters that have been archived, you don't get a sense of that struggle, um, which is kind of a shame because I think we do often, I think we do project onto the past more certainty than there was around certain major and even minor decisions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I tend to think that almost any historical issue that we can think of, um, it was uh, in American history, um, Mm -hmm. 
my guess is that there were some lawyers um, fighting about that issue. Um, you know, this is this is just a hunch based on you know a couple of deep dives, but but I think that's true that that we tend to think oh there's a takeaway, but there's always a story. And um, I mean, this is the lawyer in me that I do tend to think that lawyers are the central actors in a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you you teach both in the law school and in the history department, is that right? Yeah. So I'm primarily located in the law school, but mm-hmm. um, I'm also a professor in the history department. And um, I have, so a lot of my classes are cross-listed. So I'll have yeah. both law and PhD students, and I advise PhD students as well as law students. So Excellent. it's a great life. And you've had the opportunity to dive deeply into a few issues, but one in particular that that I just find fascinating, and it's this fundamental question that the United States had, which is that the Civil War did not definitively resolve the key question of the constitutionality of secession. And as a, a bit of a foundation setting for the conversation we'll have about the Jefferson Davis prosecution, I'm wondering if you can talk through the logic and legal reasoning of both sides of this, both the the state sovereignty theorists that said, well, of course, states can secede. It's inherent in the articles, the Constitution, and so on. Or I guess you would call them the perpetual unionists, the people who said, no, secession clearly cannot happen. Uh, tell us about both of those doctrines as you think they were understood by the 1860s. Yeah, great. So first, I should say that the Constitution itself, the text, I don't think answers this question, right? So the Constitution itself doesn't say anything about whether or not there's a right for states to secede from the Union. A lot of the battles over whether there's a right to secede um, turn on this question of who created the Union. So um, the two sides are large part, they're battling over the question of, well, who, who made the Union And I guess the theory is, well, if you make it, then you can unmake it. (laughs) So um, the two possibilities are that um, it is the states, or let me be more accurate, the people within the states. So neither, um, both sides are believers in democracy um, in the sense that they, you know, they think that the people are at at the heart of the whole system. They hold the sovereignty. Um, state sovereignty theorists um, would have thought that it's the people within the states, within each one of the 13 states that formed um, the union, um, that they held the sovereignty and that they all um, got together um, and uh, wrote this constitution and joined into the union. Um, on the other hand, perpetual unionists thought, well, the sovereignty is not held within the pe- um, by the people in each individual state, but the people as an aggregate whole. So the people of the United States. Um, and those people um, are certainly located within states and they ratify um, the Constitution by state. But um, it's not the states um, as a corporate entity that have um, anything to do with the making of the Constitution. Okay, so it seems to me there's some real nuance here that that matters for these theories about whether it's the people of the United States or the people of the states that became the United States. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure how you disaggregate that. I mean, even at the time, obviously, people were struggling with, there were opinions, 
but there was nothing definitive to point to, right? Yes. So, um, so I, I, I should say I didn't give you a full answer to your to your first question um, about uh, the secession theory. That I think um, part of the debate is about where sovereignty lies. Is it within mm-hmm. the states or is it within the people? Um, but both theorists um, are drawing on those different conceptions. But what they're thinking about is the formation of the Constitution, mm-hmm. um, and so they are looking to um, the transition from being British colonies to the United States, which goes through several steps um, beginning in the 1770s, right? Um, So uh, we get the Declaration of Independence, we get the Articles of Confederation, Mm -hmm. um, we get the Constitution um, in the span of about 15 years. Um, And uh, what what people um, are fighting about when they're thinking about secession um, in 1860 to 61 is well, was the union uh, this process by which we move to the union as it existed um, under the Constitution? Um, how should we think about that? Perpetual unionists um, are quite focused on the idea that um, the Constitution and the union that exists presently um, under the Constitution is formed through secession. So their argument is that um, when um, when the states um, form the Articles of Confederation, they're doing so independently. So the sovereignty that transfers from Great Britain to the United States transfers to each one of the states who, that declares its independence. And each of those states forms the union that exists under the Articles of Confederation. Now, how do we get from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution? Um, So the Articles of Confederation goes into existence, I think it's 1781, and then it's kind of a big failure. We write the Constitution um, at the Constitutional Convention, um, and the Constitution becomes binding, becomes the the government uh, when states each ratify the Constitution, and the Constitution says um, that uh, that it becomes the law when nine of the 13 states have signed on to it. And so it does contemplate the idea that there, there might be four states that stay under the Articles government, um, and then there might be nine under the Constitution. And the theory is that those states by joining state by state, they're actually seceding from one union Hmm. and joining another. Hmm. Perpetual unionists would say, by contrast, this is all one union, right? Like the union came into being with with the Declaration of Independence, sovereignty transferred from Great Britain to the United States, and it transferred to all the people of the United States. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that we just had different forms of government. Right. So like, you know, uh, we got the um, uh, so after uh, when we formed the um, the Articles of Confederation, that's one form of government. Mm-hmm. Discard that we get another form of government. It's mm-hmm. not different unions. Um, and the idea um, and we just we all agreed to change the Constitution and s- perpetual unionists say, look, what happened was um, states were the sovereigns and they changed, you know, their relation to one another and we formed different unions. We can do that again and form the Confederacy by seceding from the union. Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating that some people really keyed in on a phrase that almost all of us who grew up in America have heard, but we focus on less than so many other clauses in the constitution, which is 
right at the beginning, uh, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. And the idea that those three words, more perfect union, actually serve as ammunition in this argument. Yeah. Um, so so I, let me talk a little bit about that. Um, so there's this idea that um, the... Uh, um, the Articles of Confederation says this is a permanent arrangement. It turns out not to be. Um, it turns out to be quite impermanent. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this argument that um, if we are just, you know, um, changing forms of government and we form a permanent union under the Articles, and then we write the Constitution and it says that it is a Constitution that forms a more perfect union, um, then it must still be perpetual, right? The idea here is that um, um, if we have a perpetual union and then we make it more perfect, it must be even more perpetual, right? That the the element of perpetuity um, is not lost. There's there's reason there, right? The, the logic would say it can't be less perpetual while still being more perfect. And damn it, the constitution says it's more perfect. So there, that that has truthiness to it even if it's not a definitive case closed, right? Yeah, I mean, it certainly does presume um, this argument that um, that uh, being perpetual is perfect, right? Um, yeah. Which I don't know that, that that assumption is completely warranted. Yeah. Well, of course, we had a problem with that uh, collectively, which was the uh, secession of the the southern states and the formation of the Confederate States of America, and the prosecution of the Civil War, you know, at times the the Union acted like the Confederate States were a a separate country that they were fighting with. At times, they treated it more like a civil disturbance writ large. Um, but it really came to a head when when the war ended because you know the Union took uh, Richmond and I think. April of 1865, if my if my old history classes are teaching me right. And it was within about a month or six weeks that they captured Jefferson Davis down in Georgia. And all of a sudden, the people who have just been in this bloody, horrific, society-rending war, I put, what, 700,000 people sacrificed. Um suddenly they have their scapegoat. They have the person that they can put on trial to hold responsible for this. And it sure looks like treason by a common sense understanding of treason. But there's a problem with putting Jefferson Davis on trial for treason. Talk through that. Yeah. So uh, the treason clause of the Constitution says that treason um, consists in levying war against the United States. And uh, it's very clear that that's what Jefferson Davis did. I have to say that was his job, right? Like his job was to get up in the morning, brush his teeth and levy war against the United States. It seems really cut and dried in terms of- It wasn't the oath of office he took, but that was really de facto the job. Totally. Um, yeah. Uh, so so I think, you know, the, the issue of did he actually commit treason within- you know, that terminology, absolutely. Um, the problem becomes, well, treason is generally a crime of loyalty, right? So um, in order to commit treason, I have to be a citizen of the state against which I'm committing treason, right? So um, if a Canadian were to come to the US, 
um, and levy war against the United States. <laughs> That's a problem, but it but it doesn't sound like treason. Right. So um, if he were to, you know, commit all kinds of acts, there could be all kinds of criminality that would attach to it, but it wouldn't be treason. Um, and so uh, the argument here about whether Davis committed treason really turns on this question of whether or not he is still a citizen who owes a duty of loyalty to the United States. And um, the thought is that what he's going to argue in his case is, well, maybe I levied war against the United States, but I was not a citizen of the United States. When my home state of Mississippi seceded from the Union in early 1861, I became um, a citizen of another country, the Confederacy. And so the argument um, in his case about whether or not he commits treason the thought is that secession is very much going to be implicated. So if secession is legal or effectual and carries Mississippi out of the union, Davis is no longer a U.S. citizen, therefore can't commit treason. It's it's a tough one. And the best legal minds of the time, many of them in the administration, um, were really struggling with this because it's it's not something you can sit down in five minutes and resolve because if if you put Jefferson Davis on trial... And his defense ends up being, but we seceded from the union, so treason doesn't apply. There's the possibility that a, a judge or a jury, depending on how it's uh, how it's processed, could actually agree and thereby what validate the whole idea of secession. Yeah, I mean, so I think in terms of um, the you know the government thinking about this question of whether to put um, Davis on trial for treason. Um, I don't think that they're necessarily so. So um, Andrew Johnson's administration. So this is um, after um, Lincoln has been assassinated um, that Davis is caught. Um, but I don't think the administration is really struggling with the question of do we personally think that secession um, was constitutional? I think the answer to that is no. They don't personally think that. Um, but they're worried about what courts might think. Right. Um, and they're, I think, in large part, worried about what a jury might do. And then they're worried about a jury drawn um, from the Richmond, uh, Virginia area. They're worried about that problem. There's this question of where they would put Davis on trial for treason. Um, so I think they think that uh, they think that there's a large possibility um, that a jury might do something unpredictable. But I think. For them, there's also the possibility that a judge might do something unpredictable. So um, there were, um, strangely enough, um, decent theories that a judge might actually side with Davis's argument and um, say that secession was constitutional, despite the fact that there had been um, a horrific civil war um, that um, had established that the union was perpetual on the battlefield. That's it's such a fascinating issue, and yet the personalities involved were probably more fascinating. And and you've written the definitive book on it: Secession on Trial, the Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. And I got to tell you, there there are some names that I had been, I don't know, vaguely familiar with. Um, that really come out as having rich personalities and much more importance at the time than than I realized. On the um, government side, William Everts, I believe his name was, um, who would later be Attorney General and I believe Secretary of State later on. 
But then on the defense side, uh, Charles O'Connor, who in some ways is almost larger than life with, with the impact that he had. And I think it was Samuel Tilden who said that he was just one of the absolutely best jurists he'd ever seen. Talk a little bit about Charles O'Connor and how his keen mind picked up on this dilemma we've talked about and how he used that to the benefit of his client, Jeff Davis. Yeah. So I have to say, I'm, I'm surprised that, uh, that you've heard of any of these people. Um, well, you have to remember Cynthia that, um, for my second book, I did this sweep of American history, looking at how presidents have left office, which meant for the first time in my life since taking an American history class years ago, I actually had to go and dig into these 19th century sources and do the full story of Andrew Johnson's impeachment. So hard not to see some of these names, but Charles O'Connor what wasn't a huge one. Um, I think I must have come across him when I was looking at the Tilden Hayes election of 1876 because Tilden knew O'Connor and respected him so much. Um, of course, that's how William Everts c- comes up too, because he was the chief counsel for the Republicans uh, in prosecuting, if you will, the 1876 uh, disputed results. So yeah, I'm familiar with them. But honestly, it wasn't until I read your book that I knew that Charles O'Connor was such an interesting guy and really, I don't want to say manipulated this well. He did his job, right? He was an advocate. How 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 sharp his mind was to pick up on these issues and then to exploit the indecision within the administration about it. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I would say that, you know, the, the main actors in this book tend to be sort of like the, the second tier names that, that you, you know about. Um, yeah, and if pressed, you know, if I had to give one reason that that Jefferson Davis is not put on trial for treason. I would say it's because he had a good lawyer, right? Um, and so Charles O'Connor is, I think, um, probably the most central actor in this book. I, I, I guess I should also mention um, that that this is a book, um, one whole book about a trial that never happened, right? right. So. <laughs> So the outcome here, right, like the best outcome for Davis, which is the one that O'Connor secures for him, is that he's not put on trial um, for treason. And uh, what I what I argue here is that this happened because O'Connor knew about this dilemma that uh, that I that I talked about with putting Davis on trial for treason, where the administration, um, Johnson, Andrew Johnson's administration, um, I think initially thinks what a great idea. We'll put Davis on trial for treason. That's a no brainer. Of course he committed treason. Um, and that's going to establish that, you know, the war was right. And this wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, but this wasn't just a few individuals feeling that that was the national mood among the unionists is, you know, kind of the, the desire, you know, pitchforks and torches in the street and go out and, you know, we get, we have to have vengeance for this horrible, horrible war. Yeah. Um, I think another, missing piece to this puzzle is also um, Lincoln's assassination. So Lincoln gets assassinated. Um, Davis is captured. That's within about, I don't know, yeah. a week or two. A matter of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the war ends and there's this outpouring of nationalist spirit, but also this real thirst for revenge um, at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I should mention also that Davis's trial was supposed to be the first trial. Right. So not the only trial. Um, The idea was, well, we'll put Davis on trial for treason. We'll get a conviction against him. A no brainer. And then move down the line. Right. And then move down the line. Then we can prosecute others. 
Um, but if you've got a major problem with your first biggest, <laughs> most obvious case, um, this is the reason that I think that we don't get a whole bunch of other prosecutions um, after mm-hmm. this. Now, you really emphasize Charles O'Connor in this. You say he, he Jefferson Davis didn't get prosecuted for treason, probably mostly because he had a good lawyer. But could others have, have exploited this as well? Or was Connor really the, the right person at the right time and no one else could have done it so well? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, it's it's one I've thought about a lot. So I I end up on the side of I think he needed O'Connor or somebody equally savvy, but I don't know who that would be. Because <laughs> um, I think that the lawyers on the other side of this case um, are not dopes. They're they're quite smart, but I think O'Connor does sort of outsmart them. So um, I do think that you know the circumstances had to be right. Um, but I do think that you also had to have the right person because a lot of what O'Connor does is when he looks at this case, he doesn't look purely at the legal issues, right? He certainly understands the legal issues, but he thinks about the political uses to which those legal issues are going to be put. Mm-hmm. He thinks about what are the political pressures on Johnson? What's the relationship between Johnson and the Republicans? Um, He looks at the distance between Johnson and how much pressure is really building on Johnson. um, And he thinks about what's possible, what it's possible for Johnson to do. And so he thinks about sort of those political machinations. And he's also maybe even broader than that, really reading the mood of the country, right? In terms of, well, we talked about in, you know, April and May of 1865, there's this huge thirst for blood, but that's not true, I would say, even a year later. Hmm. Um, But, and it's certainly not true by, you know, 1868 to 1869 when this prosecution gets dropped. And Hmm. so a lot of his strategy here is to raise the prospect, which I think is a distinct prospect, that Davis could be acquitted. Um, And so he makes it quite clear to the administration, we are going to argue the constitutionality of secession at trial do you want to poke that bear? What if the jury decides against you? That's going to be embarrassing, isn't it? Um, And more than embarrassing. Um, And so he sort of, he keeps raising this prospect. And I think his main goal is really to stretch out the timeline. Mm -hmm. And so to think about, okay, there is this huge pressure to try Davis, but if I can delay and delay and delay Mm -hmm. long enough, um, and I can try to manipulate public opinion in Davis's favor um, and think about, oh, he's going to be this martyr for the lost cause. He's going to die um, just because, you know, um, he's the scapegoat for this cause. Can he lower the stakes in Davis's trial? And can he build some momentum in Davis's favor such that the prosecution can eventually drop the case? And so what he does is he sort of... Um, he bluffs on this question of um, uh, on secession's constitutionality. He says, I want to fight that fight and I think I'm going to win. And he gives some pretty good reasons as to why he thinks a jury might acquit Davis to make it both too politically difficult for the administration to risk this. Um, but also he's trying to build um, pressure um, in Davis's favor as well. You, you call it a bluff there. And, and that's interesting because there, there is a reasonable argument um, that can be made on this front. So it's not entirely a, um, you know, it's not entirely a front. But, right. but I think you show that O'Connor knew 
that he was presenting it more strongly and with much more confidence in in his representations to the potential prosecutors than he actually felt, that he knew that this was more of a long shot. And guess what? His client's life depended on it. So it really probably, it's at least a half bluff, wouldn't you say? Maybe, maybe a full bluff. Yes. So I think, um, you know, he has, he's certainly got a, a strategy in mind. Like, what is he going to argue if they actually go to trial? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't want Davis to be tried. So I think right. the, the bluff is not so much, um, oh, I'm going to argue the constitutionality of secession. I think the bluff is about, I really want to go to trial. <laughs> right. Um, and I do think that he, um, he suggests confidence that he doesn't have in the success of this argument. But what he does is he really plays on the ambiguity, right? Like, so we nobody knows what could happen. And this, and he talks about how high the stakes are for the government. Um, and what he doesn't talk to the government about is, you know, where his bluff is that is that he's equally worried. Maybe I don't want to say equally, but he's quite worried, right? His client's life is at stake. And, um, you know, he's looking to get Davis off with his life. Yeah. Now, the president and more so the attorney general and the the people around him are struggling with this through 1865 into 1866. And O'Connor is planting all these seeds of the trouble that it's going to be. Um, and while they're dithering and trying to figure out what to do, how to resolve this almost unresolvable problem, um, someone else takes action. There's a, a U.S. attorney, and I can't remember, Chandler, maybe was his name? Yeah. And, and he drops this indictment seemingly out of nowhere on Jefferson Davis um, sometime, I think, in 1866. Um, what was that about? Uh, why, why did he drop an indictment rel- drafted relatively quickly and, in your analysis, drafted relatively poorly? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and not say relatively poorly. Very poorly. <laughs> um, so he's under pressure from the judge. So there are two judges um, who are supposed to oversee Davis's case. So at this time, the way that federal courts were structured um, was that you'd have one district judge. And if you heard a case in the circuit court, um, which this case is supposed to be heard in the circuit court, that would be heard by the district judge as well as one of the Supreme Court justices who rides circuit. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court justice that's assigned um, to Virginia, which is where this case is supposed to be heard, it's supposed to be um, the district judge, John Underwood, um, as well as the chief justice of the United States, um, Salmon P. Chase. Um, Salmon Chase is interesting because he finds a whole bunch of ways to avoid this trial. He does not want to be involved in it. And not not necessarily for legal reasons, right? It was more political positioning because he had ambitions. Yeah. So Salmon Chase um, was a perpetual candidate for the presidency, um, I would say. So he's looking to get nominated by the Republican Party. Um, in both 1860 and 1864. And then he is looking for a Democratic nomination in 1868. You know, the the party affiliations at at this time are really quite um, fascinating. But Chase had sort of established um, a position before the rise, before the foundation of the Republican Party. Um, He had been a, a hard money guy, he, he was a believer in state sovereignty. Um, and so uh, he had been a Democrat for much of his life, an anti-slavery Democrat. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he joins the Republican Party. But, you know, he had always had his roots in the Democratic Party. So he tries to run for president in 1868. Um, and in order to do that um, on the Democratic ticket, he's going to have to get some Southern support. And that's going to be really tough if he puts the president of the Confederacy to death. Right on. Right on. So we have this, um, as you said, very poorly written indictment. Um, what was the actual charge in that indictment? I think it's lobbying war against the United States. I don't, yeah. something I don't totally remember. But there wasn't a lot of legal reasoning and, and well thought out argumentation behind it. It was just kind of thrown out there, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so absolutely. Yeah. So the indictment comes because uh, the district judge um, orders the, uh, the attorney general. Um, so they, what happens in this case is a whole series of delays, right? Um, they never bring an indictment. And then uh, the court is about to adjourn and the district judge actually in, instructs the U.S. attorney, you have the afternoon to bring an indictment. Draft wow. it now. That's pressure. Yeah. Um, and so he drafts it, I think, in about two hours. And he's looking for um, people who can testify about whether or not Davis committed treason. And I think he found them on the street uh, in his <laughs> about two hours. Um, and so these are people who are willing to testify to things like, I once saw Jefferson Davis give a speech and he said he was president of the Confederacy, things like oh, that. Wow. Yeah. It's a case study in how not to do it. But of course, you know, there is a more serious effort about a year later, right? Because there was a there was a statute of limitations issue going on here. And then I think it was about a year later that, that you wrote that you actually had a, a much more serious effort and one that had a lot of the the logic and reasoning spelled out beyond just grabbing people off the street to say they had seen a Jefferson Davis speech. Um, but Obviously, Jefferson Davis was never put on trial for treason. So what? why did that indictment not lead to something? Yeah, so so there is a quite serious effort. Um, so so eventually um, the U.S. Uh, US attorney um, and uh, uh, Everts, who um, later becomes the U.S. attorney, um, and I should mention um, William Everts um, was at that time, he's a private lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, he gets hired by um, the U.S. Attorney's Office to work on this case, which is not that unusual um, before that. It would be very unusual today, but um, it's not that unusual before the, um, the founding of the Department of Justice. And so they hire a number of prominent um, private attorneys to work on this case on behalf of the government. And they hire Everts, who's really, um, he's a big name. And he eventually proceeds with this idea of we're going to find a decent indictment against Jefferson Davis. They actually spend some time doing it. Um, they actually, you know, um, think about what they can prove and, you know, thinking about actually getting witnesses who make sense um, to show up um, at the grand jury um, to indict Davis. And uh, Everts is, is thinking about drafting a serious um, indictment against Davis so he drafts this uh, in, in concert with Richard Henry Dana, who's another private lawyer from um, Boston. That's, oh, I want to say, early 1868 um, that they draft um, that indictment. And they're thinking about proceeding against Davis, but there's all this political pressure um, about what they're going to do. But they are still worried about the idea of bringing this prosecution against Davis. And so 
while they draft this indictment, they also draft a letter that they're going to send to the attorney general saying, um, we think it's a big mistake to try Davis. Um, and so what they do, what they want to have is a paper trail saying, um, uh, we advised you not to put him on trial so that if he gets put on trial and then he's acquitted, yeah, we don't look so bad. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, if you think about this, if your job was to put the president of the Confederacy on trial for treason and you can't do it, you really look like a bad lawyer, right? I mean, there's immense pressure mm-hmm. to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think what they're they're really more frightened about is, you know, how bad are they going to look if they can't manage to do this? I mean, this is, in a yeah. sense, this is sort of a trap, right? Like this looks like great on your resume, if you're able to do it. And if you don't think about it that hard, this seems great. But then once you're sort of in in the thick of things and you get you have O'Connor sort of bearing down and suggesting, oh, I'm going to go to trial and I've figured out, you know, um, this jury is certainly going to find in favor of Davis. And even if they don't, um, you know, I think the judge... Um, Judge, uh, Justice Chase is, or maybe Judge Underwood, they're going to instruct the jury that secession um, is constitutional when you have all of those pressures. Um, I think that's when they start rethinking things and they think this could be really, look mm-hmm. really bad for us if we, if we lose. And this is the one time in, in the narrative that I recall where O'Connor, who is, who is so steadfast, does so much research, is so resolute, has such a strategy going on that he loses his nerve a bit because uh, Jefferson Davis had been uh, let out and was out on bail and I believe went to Montreal, which is interesting. Um, But for a moment, he's corresponding with Jefferson Davis and he's thinking, maybe you should refuse to come back. Maybe, Maybe you should just, you know, forego the bail and Here's why your personal honor, you know, isn't necessarily maligned by this. That that seems like a real tough moment for O'Connor thinking, uh-oh, did this whole bluffing strategy of the last two plus years fail me and more importantly, fail my client? Yeah. So this is, I think this is another place where politics really intervenes. Um, mm-hmm. and in particular, um, Andrew Johnson's impeachment really intervenes here. So that's happening also in 1868. So Congress had thought about impeaching Johnson more than once. So they impeached him in 1868, but they had been thinking about it and investigating it throughout 1867. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this doesn't actually end up being one of the impeachment charges against Johnson. Um, but in the impeachment investigation, um, there's tons and tons of questions about why Johnson has not put Davis on trial for treason. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is thought of as this is one of the um, one of the big marks against Johnson, you know, particularly in a strongly Republican Congress, right, that Johnson is soft on treason. Um, you know, he's quite Confederate friendly. Um, so maybe um, he wants Davis to be let out. Um, and so when Johnson is prosecuted, um, yeah, or when the Johnson impeachment is going on, mm-hmm. I should mention that William Everts is also one of his defense lawyers. So there's a time in which Everts is sort of working on the impeachment all day, and then all night he's working on the Davis indictment. Um, now, that's a good reason for a delay. If, if, if you're trying to say, why is it taking so long to take, you know, to take action and make progress, having the excuse of, I am defending the president in an impeachment trial 
that that ranks up there. I would agree. You know, there are times at which I think Evers dropped the ball, but those few weeks, I think I think he's busy. I think he's got a good excuse. And so one of the things um, that O'Connor is worried about is about the impeachment. So mm-hmm. he thinks, well, there are two possibilities. Either Johnson is removed or he's not removed. <laughs> but in the event that he's removed, um, then, um, then the thought is that there's going to be um, probably Benjamin Wade is going to be um, president, who is uh, a huge antagonist of Davis. He's going to be put on trial immediately. Right. And O'Connor also thinks, well, even if Johnson is acquitted, he's going to be, you know, wounded. Right. Mm-hmm. He's going to be he's going to want to um, cater to the Republicans. Right. Because he would have gotten off by the skin of his teeth, which he did. Right. Um, And so he's going to be much weakened. And so he's going to feel immense pressure to put Davis on trial immediately. Mm -hmm. Of course, Andrew Johnson is is not removed from office as part of this process. And we get to December 1868. And Andrew Johnson just kind of ends it in a big way by giving the full pardon and amnesty for the offense of treason um, against all these Confederates. And kind of, I don't want to say the story ends with a, a whimper instead of a bang, but all of this effort and all of this lawyering, but guess what? That was the strategy. It was to delay it because the political winds would shift. And O'Connor sensed that automatically in May and June of 1865, that if we could just buy enough time, events will help us out. I will say that Probably the most surprising thing that I found um, when I was, you know, putting this story together was how quickly the anger that's so palpable in 1865 really dissipated. Um, And so it's strong in 1865. There are tons of people saying things like, um, you know, uh, parade Davis through the streets. And so everybody can, you know, before you hang him, um, so everybody can see, you know, this is the price of treason. Um, And uh, there's such palpable anger. But by the time we get to 1868, um, you know, even strongly, strongly Republican newspapers are saying things and not just uh, newspapers, people like Horace Greeley, um, people who are really, um, you might be surprised, who are sort of pro-Davis partisans by that point, or at least are thinking something like, this is going to be actually really bad for our country um, if Davis is put on trial. So the anger, I think, dissipates really rather quickly in the grand scheme of things. And people are thinking, well, the goal of Reconstruction is to build a country that has the South, the former Confederacy, actually part of it. They're thinking about reintegration um, Mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, sort of a scorched earth reconstruction policy. You know, it's fascinating as you were talking through that, how quickly anger subsides. I couldn't help but reflect on the days immediately after January 6th and how you had what seemed like a, a critical mass of indignation of, okay, this has gone too far. And to, to the point that I mused at the time, and I, and I still think I believe this, that if the House and the Senate would have very quickly done a, a rapid rules change and allowed for an immediate impeachment vote and trial, um, that it would have been different than it was even weeks later, and certainly different than it is now with a lot of backwards looking justifications and excuses and well, that's in the past. Let's just let it go. That that seems like in our times that this is such a unique moment. But hearing you describe 
that how how quickly anger subsided for Jefferson Davis of all people makes right. me think this is just that this is not unique in our time that, that this is something that we should have anticipated this would have happened because it already happened once and in that case it was after the issue of secession which was not easily resolved legally was essentially resolved on the battlefield yeah i mean i i agree with that that in reading through this this stuff and and thinking through it i was surprised as well at how quickly the anger fades and how much you know sort of seizing the moment is really important right and i think that in a way, um, thinking through what happened after January 6th, right, um, and I, I certainly thought about, uh, you know, uh, the Davis precedent when that happened. Um, I'm not that surprised that anger faded quickly because um, it seems like in the moment you can hang on to this, right, and that this is not, you know, um, that that moment, this is not a moment that's going to be squandered. And I think that um, it's very easy to sort of lose hold of that emotion in a society. I guess I also think th- there's been so much um, furor over um, Confederate statues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, recently, and uh, and there's been all this this talk of, well, why are we honoring these Confederates? And if only um, we had put them on trial for treason, right after the war, like they deserved. Um, and they'd been convicted, then it would be clear that these are not heroes. And we wouldn't have had this sort of idea of, you know, commemoration of these people as um, with the heroism, right? And that sort of perspective, I think, um, you know, makes sense. But what it loses is actually how difficult that was in the moment, right? And so I think it's quite easy now to look back and say, oh, there were all these mistakes, right? Um, And yeah, absolutely. There were, right? But when you're in the moment, it's hard to know that mm-hmm. this is a mistake, right? And that um and it's hard it's from today's perspective, um you can sort of brush aside, oh, there are all these political pressures on Andrew Johnson and all this stuff. I mean, we've forgotten about all of that, right? right on. Um and we've forgotten about the sort of frightening possibility that, you know, well what if secession was vindicated in a trial? Like that seems totally removed um, from our consciousness, but it's something that they were actively dealing with. Yeah, I, I guess it, it seems like in some people's mind, the idea of not putting Jefferson Davis on trial for treason was the worst case. But truly, there was a a more worst case scenario, which is you put him on trial, um, he is acquitted of treason, and the principle of secession is upheld in a court of law just after we think we've fought a national national war to to resolve that question. Now, Davis did think that the outcome of all this resolved it, and he, of course, thought it was the other way. He wrote afterwards that the government's unwillingness to actually bring him to trial did signify that individuals could not be held accountable for the Secession Act. Um, in his words, a sovereign state cannot commit treason. And I... I don't know how much he actually believed it or how much he was just performative, uh, saying that performatively, but that's definitely the takeaway of, of quite a lot of people. Now the Supreme court ultimately did rule on secession. Um, but it was, it was perfunctory and it, and it didn't have the weight that a, a full process would have had. Um, was that the Texas versus white case? 
Yeah. So Texas versus White um, is the Supreme Court case that resolves this issue of secession's constitutionality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's heard um, in 1869, um, basically right after the the Davis prosecution is off the table. And um, it's a case where it's much less volatile, right? It's about um, the repayment of government bonds, which is not quite as exciting. Not so much. Yeah. And so in the case, um, which is heard um, in the U.S. Supreme Court, um, it's an original suit in the Supreme Court, they, the court has to confront this question of whether or not Texas is actually a state. And if yeah. it's a state, can it bring a suit in the Supreme Court? And so uh, the the court confronts this question of whether Texas, which is under Reconstruction government, um, military Reconstruction government, mm-hmm. whether or not um, it is capable of sustaining a suit. And the court has to decide two questions: whether or not um, Reconstruction, um, military Reconstruction, is permissible. And then it also has to um, confront this question of whether or not um, Texas is a state mm-hmm. on this theory of if it seceded from the Union um, in 1861. Is it still uh, was that permissible um, if it's bringing suit in 1869? Um, can it be considered a state? Um, and what happens um, in this case is that the question of secession's constitutionality is not really briefed. Right. It's sort of alluded to in the briefs, not really discussed. The arguments all sort of presume that uh, secession is unconstitutional. But um, in the course of rendering um, this opinion, Chief Justice Salmon Chase says both that Reconstruction is constitutional and that uh, secession never occurred because um, it's unconstitutional. And the, the whole treatment of the question gets about a paragraph and a half worth of analysis um, in the opinion. I would say that the discussion that we had about secession's constitutionality was more in depth than what the court actually gets into. That's that's just so shocking given the magnitude of this. The 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 the, the, the civil war, the years of of you know squabbling over whether to bring a prosecution and then it's just this kind of quick aside that okay, we've we've ruled, we've judged on it when it was not even central to the case itself. Um, but people, it seems to me like people of the time basically just, you know, put their hands together and said, good enough. Now, at least it's resolved. Um, we can move on. I mean, I, I think that's right. Um, I, so, so I do think that it's important, um, to get, or, or for many people, it's important to get a ruling, um, on secession's constitutionality sort of on the books and in the U S reports, right? So, you know, if somebody says to you in 2023, is secession constitutional? You can say no, and you can point to a Supreme Court case that says that, right? And I think that they're very interested in doing that. Um, and so they know, right, that the, you know, that the war has certainly rendered an outcome, right? And they want something more, right? Like some type of legal imprimatur um, beyond, you know, uh, the force of arms. Um, and so it's important to get um, that type of ruling. But I think at the time, um, people largely understood that that's what it was. And I think they were thinking about sort of posterity um, when they're doing that, right? When, um, you know, when Chief Justice Chase is writing this opinion in Texas versus white, um, 
he's thinking about the importance of having it be the ruling on on the books as well as on the battlefield. Um, but they are certainly thinking of it as something that is really more of an afterthought rather mm-hmm. than like a serious analysis. It does lead to an uncomfortable truth, Cynthia, that um, I, I know was one of your, your founding prompts to write this book and, and research this topic, which is as much as we hate to admit it, uh, at at its core, representative democracy, I mean, could do a whole lot through the rule of law and through judicial process. But there are some really hard fundamental things like secession in this case, that it, I mean, war resolved it. Um, the legal process really didn't, didn't shine in this case. And do we have to grapple with the fact that yeah, sometimes the use of force is the way to resolve really tough disputes. Yeah, um, I think that that's true. And yet it's really hard to write a legal opinion that says that. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so one thing that's interesting about Texas versus White is um, that uh, the dissent actually says that. Um, so oh, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, the dissent says... Um, we should, you know, we should take judicial notice of the fact that there's been a war that resolved this question, right? Which I think is, you know, going on in terms of, you know, how the majority looks at this question as well, but that's certainly not what the opinion says. Yeah, that's a real common sense, uh, common sense approach to it. One area I do want to apply this to um, before we finish is these, what I'll call the modern or more recent claims of secession. And occasionally it's counties here or there. I remember one in Maryland, maybe two years ago, a few counties in Maryland were floating the idea to secede. And um, Texas, it seems to bubble up all the time, like I mentioned at the top, including just earlier this month with a a bid to put it to a referendum uh, this fall. Um, And and California. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's It's not always red states. Yeah, isn't that interesting, right? There's there's different reasons for it, but it's almost it almost goes back to just some fundamental idea that well, we don't like what's happening, therefore secession. Mm-hmm. And looking back at this history and all of the complicated issues that that come up with it, it's really not a simple solution. Yeah. And it seems to me that we still don't have a good sense despite Texas versus White of of what a secession effort would actually mean as it wound its way through the political and legal process. Right. So I think I think part of that might be the Texas versus white case, right? Like the way it's written that it is so perfunctory, right? So um I think it gives some ammunition in ways that maybe Chase did not expect um to because the analysis is is you know, is is so limited, right? Um, that people think, oh, it didn't really answer the question in a serious way. Um, and I think it, it certainly could have gotten a more serious analysis. Um, so it's there and it's a stand-in for the idea that the, you know, that the war resolved the question. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't actually get serious treatment. So I do think that that's, that's, that's part of it, right? That the, the analysis, um, um, in the case is is limited. But I think this goes sort of beyond case law um, in the sense that, well, I mean, 
you talked about how we live in a democracy, right? And what Texas versus white, and I should say also the outcome of the Civil War says is that this is a permanent arrangement. Lincoln likened the union to a marriage. Um, and, and this is a permanent arrangement. There's there's not a way to get out. Um, and I do think that in some sense, um, you know, that, that there may be impulses where, you know, uh, uh, somebody doesn't agree with the decision of the minority and thinks about, um, okay, well, could there be another arrangement? I think the problem with secession in our country um, is that it's so heavily inflected by the race question and about slavery and about what happened in our American Civil War. It's almost impossible to sort of think about this in the abstract. But I should say that in the abstract, if you sort of divorced secession from the American context of is association with slavery. If you divorce it, it doesn't have to be attached to that context. It just always has in American history. That's right. But if you were to think about it sort of internationally, I do think that there are secessionist movements all over the world that get a lot of traction and a lot of support, right? Um, because they aren't necessarily inflected by this history, right? In American history, I think it's really impossible to, to think about this question really in the abstract without the civil war hanging over us. Right. I know that um, historians differ on how much they like to do applied history and consciously apply lessons of the past to today. Um, some people run headlong into it and we've enjoyed talking with, with some, some others very much hesitate and talk about the unique nature of the times. And there is no strict lesson for, from every period to another period. And I'm wondering, kind of as a as a wrap up here, a big picture question: How do you feel about people ask you, and they have in the media about this secession claim or this secession claim, and they they call up the expert and say, "Hey, Cynthia, you know, give us a line or two on whether whether this makes sense or not." Do you do you feel like that's a duty of a historian to try to make sure that writ large, not just in the classroom, that we're applying lessons from the past appropriately? Or do you put so many caveats on it because it is just inherently difficult? So I will say that I have impulses both ways. I'll say uh, largely, I tend to be a, I have trouble sort of extrapolating from the past type person. But I guess part of this is, um, is there sort of a one set, if somebody calls me up and says, give me one sentence on whether secession is legal, I say, it's not see Texas versus white, right? Um, And and you're right, it does keep coming up, right? And I keep referring them to the same case. So I do think that people are sort of, you know, part of this is um, relates to some of the stuff we've talked about, which is sort of how are lawyers sort of interpreting history, right? I think that they are thinking about, well, what's the takeaway? And as a historian, my impulse is to sort of go deeper and say, um, I want to tell you the whole story. I can give you the one sentence takeaway, but you're going to miss a lot. And so I do think that the context is important. On the other hand, here's where I am willing to sort of venture out and say that I think that there are some things that are fairly universal about American history. I do think that the rule of law is really quite important, even in times of crisis, right? Um, you know, when I started uh, being interested in the Civil War as a legal historian, um, the reason I was interested in it is it because it's the time that I think is the most chaotic in American history. And if you're going to find any period in which um, the rule of law just does not matter, right, I think this is going to be it. 
But what I found is that they're, you know, um, people are really deeply invested in legal arguments and um, getting back to normal, right? And that's what the rule of law does. And I think as Americans, we tend to think that that's sort of part of our national identity. And I think that that's, that's fairly universal. Maybe sort of cutting the other way is, I've been thinking about like what went on in Davis's trial and then what happened with, you know, January 6th. And I do think that the passage of time is sort of a big problem. And by that, I mean um, that if you think you're not going to strike while the moment is hot, because that moment is going to linger, right? And you might have a chance to do something down the line. Right. I don't think that's so true, right? Like, I, I do believe that there are sort of moments when something's possible, right? Um, and, you know, if um, public opinion is headed in a particular direction, and that that moment sort of vanishes, and it's very hard to recapture. And then it's also, it's even very hard to remember. That's a good point. It's It's not about what happened. It's about how we remember what happened. I think a lot of history is really about sort of collective forgetting um, in the sense that, you know, I, I'm telling a story in this book that, gosh, in some sense, maybe it was better for the world that we didn't remember how contentious this actually was, right? Um, maybe life was easier when we thought, oh, it was so easy to think about secession after the Civil War. Of course, it was unconstitutional, the end right? The messiness is something that we tend to forget. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, now's the time when we reach into our chatterbox and I ask you a random question pulled from within. Cynthia, who is someone in your field, or I should say in one of your fields, or a related one, whose work more people should be following? Um, okay. So the book that in, um, immediately um, sprang to mind um, is Willie Lee Rose's book Rehearsal for Reconstruction, which oh. is which is an old book. Um, so um, it was written in the sixties, um, and uh, she was a pioneering um, female Civil War historian. Mm-hmm. And this book, um, I have gone back to again and again and again. I just I reread it for pleasure. It mm-hmm. is such an amazing book because she's telling really important story. This this book is about um, the South Carolina Sea Islands and um, an experiment with freedom that starts early in the Civil War. And um, this experiment really demonstrates to the world, right, uh, that emancipation is possible. Um, and uh, so she's telling a really important story, but she also tells it incredibly well. Like she's a great storyteller. Yeah. And um, the people are central and it's just I, I do think that in both of my professions, I wish that telling the story were more central. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to be a writer because I like storytelling. I wish we did more of that. Right on. And we'll include a link to that in our show notes, as well as a link to your own excellent example of storytelling, um, Secession on Trial, The Treason, Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. Cynthia, thanks for spending so much time with me. Thank you. This was really a pleasure. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.